Wood Mackenzie's online future-facing commodities forum is back for its third year. Join us online on March the 27th for an open discussion with our experts on renewables, EVs and advanced battery technology. There'll be two events on that date, one during the day in the Asia-Pacific region and one during the day in Europe and the Americas. So you should be able to find a time to suit you wherever you are in the world. At either one, you'll be able to get insights from our unparalleled integrated coverage of the renewables, battery and electric vehicles value chains. You'll be able to hear our industry-leading analysts unpack their forecasts for key future-facing commodities, including lithium, nickel, copper, aluminium and rare earths. Learn how technology, geopolitics and regulation are transforming the metals markets as we build an electrified future. To register, go to go.woodmac.com slash FFCF2024. You can find the details in today's show notes. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about gas. Well, I suppose, in fact, we're going to be talking about two gases in particular. We're going to be talking about methane, CH4, more commonly known as natural gas. And also, we're going to be talking about hydrogen, H2, which is what many people hope will replace natural gas for many uses in our energy system. And to talk about those two gases, I'm joined by Melissa Lott, who's the research director at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy and a professor at Columbia's Climate School. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. I'm good. And I'm really good because of the person you're about to introduce next. I can't wait for this conversation with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. It's a great pleasure to have back Emily Grubert, who's an associate professor of sustainable energy policy in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Hi, Emily. How are you? Great. and delighted to be here. Yeah, great to have you back. So as I was saying, we have a very gassy show today. Melissa, you were talking about this earlier. What are your thoughts on the subject of gas? Oh, man. So I think high level, it's funny because I spend so much of my work on gases, as in greenhouse gases, of which, you know, CH4 is one of them. And hydrogen, we can get into that conversation, too, about what the newer evidence and the literature is saying about it. But when I think about all of these gases in all the different forms, I think about the tension points in the conversation and where we need to lean into them and say, okay, what is the role of natural gas? What is the role of hydrogen? How are we going to think about the overall greenhouse gas emissions context of that and how much we have left in terms of runway when we're going to net zero and trying to keep global temperature rise well below two degrees? So I guess my world is gassy. I don't know. I do a lot with gases. So there you go, Ed. I know we're going to dive into it. Yeah, Emily, so what are your thoughts on this? I think one of the most interesting things about natural gas and kind of by extension hydrogen, because as you say, a lot of why we're talking about hydrogen is to replace certain uses of natural gas that are difficult to electrify, is really that gas is kind of the center of gravity of, I think, at this point, international climate policy. We're coming to general agreements about what's going to happen with coal. People see paths forward for what might happen with oil. There's a huge amount of uncertainty about what the role of gas is. I have my own opinions, but I'm really glad we're talking about this today. And on that, there's a name that we need to talk about, which is Bill McKibben. And the idea of, okay, we've talked about coal, as you say, we're in a place where we kind of have a consensus around where that is going, you know, leaving the caveats aside for a moment. When it comes to gas, there's been a lot of stir up in the conversation here in the last year and in the last few months around what is the footprint of it and what role can it have as a result? And then what does that mean for international trade, energy security, dot, 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 down the line? Right, absolutely, which is a great segue into the first thing I want to talk about on this episode, which is the announcement by the Biden administration on a pause in approvals for new plants to export liquefied natural gas, LNG, to the world. Uh, it's a pause on approvals specifically for countries that don't have a free trade agreement 
with the US. And that absolutely, I think, goes right to the heart of, as you say, what you've been raising in terms of questions about the role of gas in the energy transition and the questions about the future of gas in a decarbonizing world. And clearly one of the motivations for what the Biden administration is doing, as they said themselves in the statement talking about it, is addressing the climate impact of that gas and the potential for locking in fossil fuel infrastructure into the future. There's a lot of other things going on, though, and we'll probably get into a few of those things when we discuss this. The significance of this, to be clear in what they're saying, doesn't affect current exports of gas from the US. And it doesn't affect, in fact, and it doesn't affect, in fact, the massive build out of new LNG infrastructure that's going on right now, which will greatly increase US LNG exports over the next five years or so. This is about what happens beyond that. It's about new projects getting permitted. And the reason I was specifying that point about this is about permits to export gas to countries that don't have a free trade agreement with the US is that those are most of the most important markets for LNG. So that's Japan, members of the EU, China, the UK, all of those countries don't have a free trade agreement with the US. So if you can't sell to those countries, it's very hard for you to sell your gas in the world market. And so it's very hard for you to get the financing to get your plant built. So essentially, by denying these approvals, the Biden administration is saying, for the moment, for as long as we are maintaining what they call this pause on approvals, while we kind of review all the issues around LNG exports, that means no new projects are going to get approved and start going ahead with construction. So, as I said, a lot of issues around this, which I want to walk through a bit. I mean, maybe, Emily, start off just by thinking about the announcement, what the Biden administration said. What's your response to this statement and this shift in policy? What do you think about what they've done? It's an interesting question because at a lot of levels, they haven't really done that much, quite frankly, when we think about this from either a gas policy perspective, even just geopolitically, or if we think about this from a climate perspective, it's not an outright denial. It's a pause. And there's not really a statement of what the administration's intent is in terms of eventually actually processing these, which may actually be in another presidential administration. And it's not really saying we are explicitly trying to cut down on the amount of future LNG infrastructure that we're trying to develop. I think one of my biggest complaints with American climate policy, quite frankly, is that we don't really have a position on what that means for natural gas. And this feels to me a little bit like more of the same to some extent. We're sort of refusing to take an exact position on what is going on in ways that maybe make some space to have deeper conversations about what that needs to be. So I think on the whole, I was glad to see this announcement. I think that it is important for there to be kind of an acknowledgement that the LNG infrastructure is expanding really, really quickly. But I'm not sure this is really that much of a policy decision, to be honest. So I saw one announcement describing it as a big win for the climate. And Melissa, you were mentioning Bill McKibben earlier, well-known climate campaigner. He was very much welcoming the announcement, saying definitely he thought the administration was doing the right thing. A big win, though, is that overstating it, Melissa, do you think? I think it's too soon to tell, frankly. And I think that it could be a big win if this turns into a much deeper conversation about the role of gas. It could be a big win if we really think about what it means to say yes or no to a permit like this. But for now, it's a pause and could go in a good direction and might not. It's hard to say so far. Melissa, what do you think? Yeah, so one thing I'll flag just because a lot of my thoughts on LNG are enriched and the depth of it is enriched by a number of the people I work with here at the Center on Global Energy Policy. And there's a piece that we just put out in our uh, Energy Explained. It's an online blog that we have by three of them, and sophie Ira, and Akosh, who talk about the consequences of the pause for U.S. LNG. And I will say when I read that piece, it aligned with a couple different things. So with me, this pause is it's a pause, A. As Emily said, this isn't a, it's done, it's over. There's a clear decision and 
we're not going forward or we are. It's actually just a pause at the moment. And then it really is one where the timing of it I find quite interesting. And I wonder what will happen after this next set of elections. But in terms of it being a massive win for the environment, I will say I think it's a win in the sense of I think this will help to force a necessary conversation, which I think Emily lines up with what you just said, actually, in some ways. We need to have a conversation. We need to make some decisions about what the role is going to be, both domestically and in terms of our role as a United States in a global marketplace. So starting those conversations, you know, Ed, I talk about it all the time, that is a win. You need to lean into the hard stuff and actually have a discussion about it. So yes, tentatively, a win on some level. No, totally. That makes sense. And certainly, well, I'd like on this podcast to start to get into that conversation a little bit and maybe just kind of sketch out what some of the key issues might be in that conversation. When you think about the Biden administration and what President Biden has done in terms of climate policy, I think he can certainly feel that he hasn't been getting enough credit for all the work that he's been doing. I saw an amazing tweet the other day from a professor of climate policy at Tulane University, and he was talking about teaching a class and young people who are interested in climate policy, studying it. Many of them, I think he said, would regard themselves as climate activists. And he said to them, how many of you have heard of the Inflation Reduction Act? Never mind knowing exactly what's in it, but just how many have even heard of it? And he said very, very few hands went up. And actually, I think there's some polling data that also suggests this is the case more generally in the country, that a lot of people don't know about the Inflation Reduction Act. Obviously, it's not great branding in terms of climate policy. That's not what the name of the bill says, but it is still, I think probably all of us could agree on this, the most important piece of climate-related legislation passed in the US for decades. Very, very important step in terms of changing the trajectory of energy policy in the US. But as I say, President Biden doesn't seem to be getting the credit for it from people who are interested in climate. Doesn't sound like it's going to be something that's really going to motivate people, get them out to the polls voting in November. And so when the administration is thinking about how to mobilize people, how to mobilize those climate voters, what they've done here with this LNG announcement is they've set up a very, very clear opposition between this is us, this is what we're doing, we're pausing these LNG project approvals, versus the Republicans on the other side who are still very much in favour of increasing LNG exports. I saw former President Trump talking about this the other day. He said, if I'm re-elected, one of the first things I'll do is I'll lift this pause and get back on with building more LNG terminals again. So that is setting up this pretty clear dichotomy there between the two parties, one in favour of increased energy exports and one opposed to them. And that maybe is something that's going to give people a reason to get out and vote if they care about the climate in November. Do you think that's right? Is that what the administration is doing? Is it playing politics here? Is it mostly a political announcement? Or is that being too cynical about it? What do you think? I mean, within this, like, look at the timing. So it's a pause. It's not a cancelling. And Unless I've missed it. Y'all tell me if you've seen something in the headlines. But I saw, you know, Trump saying, OK, this is like day one kind of stuff I would do. I haven't seen the Biden administration say anything about what they would do. And so to me, that speaks a lot in the sense of it's a temporary pause. It's done at a time where, at least when you look at the numbers in the polling, like not going green enough on some of these issues could really hurt in terms of getting some voters to the polls to vote. And I just, I don't see how it is not at least involved and impacted by the election that is now fully underway at this point. I mean, we are full swing. But I wonder how many other decisions are going to be made in the next six months, depending on how tight numbers are. Like, I really do. I think this may be the first actual thing we hear out of a series of different announcements that happen. 
I maybe come down on this more cynically. So all love and respect to Michael and I think a few other people that have made this point about Ira. But at the same time, like, has it done that much yet? I mean, there's a lot of projects that have been announced, a lot of people that are talking about taking advantage of it. But we're early days for what the Inflation Reduction Act is actually going to achieve. And I think we are still at a place where it's true. We haven't really seen the big shifts. We can project what those look like. We can try to understand what that's going to mean. But part of the reason why I don't think people are grabbing onto this and saying, look at all this climate action is because we haven't done that much yet. The LNG announcement strikes me as something in kind of the same vein where it's not a decision. It's a directional statement of something, but it's not a decision. And I think that we're seeing quite a lot of that in US climate policy and politics. The Moses point about the timing and really trying to see where this goes. I think there's a few things going on here. So again, super cynical hour. I'm not convinced that the pause on these terminals necessarily disrupts the industry that much. Like there's a huge amount of capacity. There's a huge amount of shipments. Weather conditions are changing, like crisis conditions are changing. This is maybe a fairly easy way to say we're not going to have a big yes decision at a time when that would be negatively perceived, but it's also something that's not going to hurt the companies that much. At the same time, by being able to talk about this as largely an environmental justice driven pause. I find that also to be a little bit cynical in that, again, if that were really, really the concern, I think a lot of the communities that are around these terminals have made their positions on these fairly clear. So if environmental justice is the reason for the pause, why is it just a pause and things like that, that I think we see a lot of politicking that's maybe mostly around trying to talk about what might happen without necessarily having done very much. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And to be clear about the environmental justice angle, so this is about local pollution from the plants, right? It's about particulates, volatile organic compounds, other local pollution being released from an LNG plant that creates potential health issues for people living in that area. And that's what people are concerned about, right? That's a lot of it, but it's not everything. I think there's also quite a bit of concern about just the longevity of infrastructure like this. So I think historically, environmental justice activism has largely been around highly local impacts. Some of that is health impact. A lot of that is health impact. Some of it's also things like traffic, like loud noises, lights, those kinds of things. But I think increasingly, a lot of the environmental justice conversation coming out of the Gulf in particular has been focusing on why are we hosting fossil infrastructure and why are we going to need to be hosting fossil infrastructure for the next several decades? The fact that this all comes out right around the same time when I think a uh, decision to pause a big plastics plant, I want to say, got overturned quite recently, which was a huge part of the fight in the same region is also kind of interesting from a timing perspective. But yeah, it's not entirely about local health impacts, but that is a lot of it. When we talk about justice, it's really important. Like The health risks and the negatives there are one part of that equation. But when you're talking about justice, it's also about who shares and the benefits and how they share. And like that conversation, as far as I can tell, is like still pretty status quo around these types of projects. And back to the point that you made, Emily, about the Inflation Reduction Act, like, yes, this thing got passed. That's cool. But in terms of it manifesting in our lives, that's going to be a ways out. I think when you talk to Shalanda Baker's office at the Department of Energy and all the folks there who are working really hard on Justice 40 and monitoring and saying, okay, did 40% of the benefits go to these communities we define in these buckets? We're not going to know that for six, eight, 10 years, maybe sooner for some things, but we got to like build them, recognize benefits that we've measured and then can evaluate. And that just takes time, especially for big infrastructure projects. But I would say in general, like right now, the Inflation Reduction Act, people aren't living at the center of its execution yet. And so it doesn't feel very real to a lot of folks. 
The other piece I would say when it comes to natural gas, like I do think it is interesting how this has so quickly become an election issue, which if you want to say this was a politics, political election move, then that immediate response to it says, yeah, whatever polling's going on in the background was right because it was important enough of a move that Trump immediately responded to it, which says that for some reason they think that responding to this will help that campaign. So that to me says, yeah, you did actually plug in on a hot button issue. Otherwise, it just would have kind of died and not been part of the conversation certainly not elicited immediate responses. On February the 26th in Orlando, Florida, Distributech 2024 gets underway. Distributech is the premier annual event for energy transmission and distribution, and the Energy Gang is partnering with the event. We'll be recording a special episode from the conference, which will be out on Thursday the 29th as the event wraps up. You can claim 20% of your registration for the event by using the promo code DTPART33 at distributec.com. Join us at the event or via the podcast as we explore the latest advances that are shaping the future of energy production. So let's get past the immediate upcoming political cycle and implications of the next election. Take a step back and think about, as you say, that bigger conversation, Melissa, that's being opened up now about US LNG exports. The US rising last year to become the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. It's going to cement that position very significantly over the coming decade, just on the basis of all the projects that have already been permitted and have started construction. What do you think are the consequences of that for the climate and for the economy? I mean, it seems to me the issues are pretty complex. In particular, an argument you'll often hear, and it's an argument that's been aired on this show in the past, is that if we are going to move away from coal rapidly, which is commitment that governments around the world have made, it was reiterated again at COP28 in Dubai in December, we don't have the ability still to use renewables or nuclear power or anything else to replace coal immediately with zero carbon power on the grid. Therefore, we need something else. Therefore, that's got to be natural gas. And despite everything that we know about natural gas, including the fact that obviously it is very far from having zero associated greenhouse gas emissions, both upstream and through the value chain, and when it's burned as well, despite that, it's still better than coal. Therefore, at least if the US is exporting more natural gas and preventing countries around the world investing more in coal production and locking in coal mines and coal-fired power for the future, that is a positive step. How do you feel about that argument? Two things I feel about the argument. One is actually the pressure that's being put on the argument by different sets of analysis. So when you look at LNG, okay, so what am I thinking about flaring, leakage, and then also what fuels I'm using to actually move the ships that move the liquefied natural gas around the world. And like those contribute to the overall footprint of that thing that is delivered. And so at the end of the day, the climate cares about emissions. It doesn't care about what our calculations say they in theory should be. It cares about what actually goes into the air. And so the questions are, what are we going to do around that? And there's arguments on both sides as to whether actually having the U.S. supply in this LNG would be better because we have regulatory things in place that makes us much more likely to control for a lot of that stuff, or whether just building up extensive natural gas export infrastructure is really a great idea or not. So the second thing I'll say is at the end of the day, we're going to net zero and we're looking to get there as quickly as possible to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. And so how much time we spend arguing about gas, I'm not saying it's not important or it is, but like we need to be thinking about getting 
beyond a place where gas use is continuing to rise all over the world in a lot of places that have other alternatives if we are committed to a net zero future in the very short term. Like there's a tension there. And I'm going to park for a moment the developing and emerging economy, energy access, energy for development conversation, and the we have tons of infrastructure and we're looking at how to use it and then how to transition and all that for the moment. But what is the role that gas is going to play and how much cumulative emissions do we have left to hit our targets? The answer is not a lot. And so where are we going to spend them? And are we going to spend them on natural gas used for what applications and what senses and how do the geopolitics fall into all this? One thing I will highlight, um, you mentioned Asia. I'm thinking about all of the headlines I have been seeing and all the discussion around in response to this decision around the EU. And one thing that we've been talking about here at the center, because we have a global center that's in Paris, our EU colleagues, including Anne-Sophie Corbeau, who's one of the authors on the piece I mentioned, you know, she's like, look, we're talking about how much export we need to send to the EU. And that's actually not where I think long term it will go because we are going to see declining gas demand based on other investments that are being made for security, geopolitical and climate reasons. And so it's a complex topic. Um, but from a climate perspective and mitigation perspective, if we're going to hit the Paris Agreement targets. It's not about substituting coal with gas for the rest of time. It is about how we get emissions down to net zero. And the economics don't seem aligned with like, we'll use tons of natural gas and offset it with direct air capture forever or something else. Like it is about declining global use of this stuff over time. Emily, anything in there that you're like, nope, I am not on board for that statement? <laughs> or does it sound pretty aligned with how you think about it? No, I think that's pretty aligned. I think I probably come down a little harder that there are versions of the world where we actually hit climate targets and there's some natural gas involved in that, but there aren't versions of the world where we have unrestrained natural gas use. And I think a lot of the time I see people, and I'm not saying that this is what you were doing, Melissa, but I see people sometimes basically saying, well, you know, this pathway still has some gas in it. So somewhere that needs to be producing gas. We need to have some gas in the system. That might be true. But if we're not actually taking steps to make sure that that's really, really heavily restricted, then there's not a lot of reason to believe that some of the cool things that gas could hypothetically do would actually happen. And I think we need to focus on getting all of it to zero really quickly. The other thing that I will mention that I think is fascinating in light of the fact that this paper came out about a year and a half ago, there was a, a nice piece by Shooting Yang, uh, Sarah Hastings Simon, and Arvind Rabakumar a year and a half ago or so that was basically like at that point, the planned level of LNG export capacity exceeded the amount of coal to gas switching that was compatible with a 1.5 to 2 degree target. And essentially, there's not enough coal to substitute with all of the gas that could be exported through here. So I think that's another kind of interesting thing to keep in mind here, given that there's actually quite a bit more capacity now than there was at the time the paper came out. And I'll say, Emily, it sounds like we are very much agreeing. You're just being very more direct and clear and eloquent about how you stated it. Because it's one of those things, it's same thing with oil, right? So yes, a lot of the net zero scenarios I see, and that makes sense given the complexities of the world. Like we will still see some fossil fuel use around mid-century, but in no scenario does it not end up being a ton less. Like it's just, it's a big drop. It's not to absolute zero, but it is a big drop. And, you know, some of that comes into when you're talking about industry and actually chemical feedstocks and we need molecules. We're not even talking about burning them to get heat to boil water to produce electricity or something like that. But it is a lot less and bending the curve quickly matters. And so I honestly have had some flashbacks <laughs> in the last couple of weeks about natural gas. And it feels again like the biofuels conversation and everything else where it's like everybody, they're like, this is my solution. And it's like, well, the reality is we can't all be using this if we want to be aligned with these goals. In the case of biofuels, we don't have enough to put everything in our economies on biofuels. Like the tensions are too huge. So going back to like base principles, we have to bring emissions down. We have to bring them down quickly if we want to reach net zero goals. If that is our goal, we need to do that. And natural gas is a big tension point in that conversation. Right. So for me, then, that is 
quite a worrying point to make. And I think everything you've been saying, both of you, I totally hear what you say. I think it's very compelling, very credible, very convincing. As you say, the science is what it is. The evidence is pretty clear. My big concern, though, is what is your alternative? And what is a theory of change that gets us to a different energy system? Because if you talk to people from developing economies in Asia in particular, which I've done a bit over the past couple of years, you know, talk to people in Pakistan, Bangladesh, I'm sure it's true, a lot of the countries as well, they are absolutely reliant on growth in fossil fuel power generation in the future to meet demands of growing populations, increasing industrialization, rising incomes. They want to improve living standards for the population and they are probably investing a great deal in renewables as well, but they can't rely solely on variable renewables to meet their growing demand for power. And so they need something else. They need some fossil power. And if it's not gas, it'll be coal. And everything you say about locking in natural gas and that being a problem is true, but it's even more of a problem, sure, if we lock in coal. And, you know, I think back to Pakistan in particular, what happened in 2022, Pakistan had been kind of shifting its energy system and its power system away from coal and towards natural gas. And they built LNG import terminals and pipelines and gas-fired power plants, encouraged, in fact, by the US and by other countries who would say, this is a lower carbon option, there'll be less local pollution involved with this as well, and so on. And then when global natural gas prices absolutely went through the roof in 2022, they found their economy squeezed, energy supply squeezed, caused huge problems in that country. And the response was, OK, we've got to go back to coal and we're going to build more coal-fired power plants instead. What do you say to those countries about what their future should look like, given the constraints they face? And what if, as the US, you say, OK, because of all these issues with carbon budgets that impose this kind of inexorable logic on emissions, what is the solution for those developing economies? I'm going to take it a level up real quick, Ed, which is what I say when people talk about, oh, you know, if this country develops in this way and it's emissions intensive and da da da, I'm saying, guys, we need to be able to support a future that we all want to see, which to me comes back to honestly financing. And I'm not going to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I'm like, if we want to allow for energy for development, for infrastructure to be built out in countries that don't have it, we have to provide financing mechanisms that support that being done. And if we want to make sure that it doesn't have that climate tension, then okay, great. Green bonds, how are we going to do them? Practically speaking, XYZ, insert all the different tools that my colleagues Gautam and Louisa can tell you about in great detail. And we can walk down to Wall Street and talk through it and talk to the multilateral development banks. But you can't, and I think we've moved beyond this, and I don't think this is what you were saying, Ed, but it's like we can't say, oh, sorry, you know, develop this other way or not. You know, it's like we have to provide tools to allow for development, to allow human development index of one for everyone, to allow for thriving in all the economic development. Right, absolutely. But you say, we hope we're not saying this, but that's kind of what you are saying, right? If you say, oh, we're going to stop LNG exports, and then maybe there'll be some financing mechanism as yet to be determined, which will be fine, don't you worry. That's not a very compelling message, I think. I don't think that's what I was saying. So no, 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 I don't. No, okay. I'm not saying okay. that's what you're saying. I'm saying oh, that that okay. in effect is what the governments of the West, what the US and others are saying. Well, and that's what I'm saying. If you don't want this outcome to happen, then let's get together and come up with solutions and then implement those solutions, which I will say in fairness to the COP conversations, we've gone from, you know, Egypt to Dubai to the COP we're going to go into this year, believe it or not, because it's 2024 already and this is happening. And it's saying like, what are we going to practically do? So we got a loss and damage fund. What are we practically 
really going to do about actually moving the needle on sending huge amounts of money into the projects we need to get the things built that we need to support human health and flourishing in the climate is, of course, a huge part of that. So yeah, that's where I move to. It's like, no offense to an individual LNG project. We need to think about those, absolutely. But I take it up a level and say, what do we need to be doing to create a structure where the momentum will build around the outcomes we want to have? I think we might be agreeing, but I can't tell. Ed, confirm or deny, are we agreeing? Kind of. I guess we, yeah. okay. <laughs> I, I guess what we're agreeing in principle, it's the practice and what actually happens, I think we may be different. And I think I'm less optimistic than you. I'm saying what needs to happen, not what is actually happening. On that, we are very much in agreement. That is what needs to happen. I agree. Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I have uh, spicy takes as usual, I guess. But I think one of the things that I don't hear in this conversation is all of these countries that are purportedly the ones that rely on this natural gas for the development needs saying, dear United States, we would like to become geopolitically dependent on you basically forever by locking in a need for your LNG. I hear Americans talking a lot about how American gas could unlock all of these great things. I don't hear a lot of pull for that. I'm sure it exists. But I don't know that we're necessarily coming at this from a completely honest perspective when we really think about what the goal is here in terms of human development. Also, as just a side note, I made my students do this calculation for a problem set last week. But if you look at the amount of emissions that are required to provide kind of a basic level of electricity to everybody in the world, so 1,000 kilowatt hours a year, most Americans' households use kind of 12,000 a year. So it's not a lot, but it is sort of basic services. You do that via coal. That accounts for something like 1.4% of global emissions. The kinds of emissions we're talking about, even at very, very dirty fuel levels for basic development needs, are not very high. And so I think that that's another thing that really needs to be part of this conversation. But more broadly, the questions I think about what actually does need to happen is true in the US, where I mostly focus, but I think it's true everywhere. It's a sovereignty question. There's big questions about who gets to make these decisions. But I think every country really needs to take it very seriously to say, what is our actual plan to meet climate targets and what are we going to do about that? Because again, like we've been talking about, maybe there are some fossil fuels that are part of that plan. But until we've actually said, like, what would it mean for us to succeed at actually reaching these goals? Here is our plan. Here is our retirement schedule for everything. Here's what we're going to build instead. Here's our redundancy plan. Here's how we're going to make sure people are still warm and cool as appropriate when the power goes out or whatever. Until we've done that, we're kind of just pissing in the wind with this one, I think. Yeah, no, that is a great point. I mean, just you describing that agenda and, and listing all of those points, that gives you an idea of just how much work there is still to be done. It's an enormous amount of effort that needs to go into it. But it's doable. And I think this is one of the other things I talk about a lot, especially with my engineers. It's like, these are all questions that we know how to answer. Like, what does it look like to safely retire a coal plant? What does it look like to make sure that you've got a wind farm picking up afterward? What does it look like to retire a gas pipeline or something like that? We can answer all of those questions. We just haven't really spent the time to do it. Double clicking on one thing that was said in passing in this is I don't hear community saying, I don't hear the word community. Community engagement in all of these conversations and like getting those voices. We hear some really loud voices and headlines, but they're not the voices of local communities very, very often. And in terms of engagement around like how we solve things, back to the environmental justice point, like this is something we need to lean into and like have those conversations occur. And not just to Emily's point here in the US where the fuels may or may not come from at some point, but in all of these countries that are trying to develop. What is it they want? What are their priorities? What situations will work for them on the ground in local communities? No, that is a fantastic point as well. And as you were saying, Melissa, 
It's great that we've started this conversation. We certainly have not finished it and we're going to be carrying on for many months and uh, years to come on this show and in lots of other places. We must move on, though, because I do want to talk about hydrogen as well, because that's another pretty interesting thing that happened very recently, which is we had an announcement from the US Treasury and the IRS about the tax treatment of hydrogen eligibility for tax credits for clean hydrogen that were in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 as we've just been discussing. A lot of people may not know what that act was, but certainly people who are interested in hydrogen have been very keenly focused on it. Taking a step back, hydrogen in principle is one of those technologies that people think could play a very key role in the energy transition, especially for what they call the hard to decarbonize sectors, fertilizers, petrochemicals, steel, some of the bits of heavy industry and so on. But what people are finding now as you start to try and turn that vision into reality is there's all kinds of practical problems crop up. And in particular, there's a lot of problems with this question of what is green hydrogen. So green hydrogen, which is the kind that everybody loves the best, which is in principle essentially could have zero emissions, which is hydrogen made by electrolyzing water using power from renewable sources, wind and solar, hydro, and so on. In principle, that's great. In practice, there is a big problem, which is that a lot of renewables, wind and solar, certainly are variable. They're not 24-7. You can't always rely on them. And people in general want to run their hydrogen plants around the clock to get the maximum efficiency out of them. And actually, in some cases, not actually safe to run your hydrogen plant intermittently, depending on the technology you're using. And so, in practice, most people, it seems, or many people who've got these hydrogen projects are going to connect them up to the grid. And if you've connected your project to the grid, then it's a bit of a philosophical question. And this is one area where my brain starts to get a little bit bent on this one, which is the question of when is power really renewable if it comes from the grid? And obviously, you know, the electrons aren't labelled, so you can't tell in that way. So, you know, what does it really mean to be using a green power supply to make hydrogen? And and it's quite metaphysical, gets like the question about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. Of course, what the IRS really doesn't like is philosophical, metaphysical questions. They're not the great people to decide those. They need very practical rules to decide who's eligible for these tax credits at what level. And basically, their credits are more generous the lower carbon your hydrogen is. And so that was what they published the rules for back in December, just immediately before Christmas. There was a huge outcry about these rules, and some people liked them, and other people hated them. And it's clear there's going to be a fight. This was just a proposed rule that they published, and it's clear there's going to be quite a bit of fight still before the final rule comes out. But just in terms of what they've said so far, Emily, I know this is something you've been thinking about. What do you make of what the Treasury said? Does it make sense to you? Are they going about, as I say, settling this pretty philosophical question in the right way? Yeah, it's interesting. I think on the green side, so the part where we're talking about electrolytic hydrogen, they've done about as well as they can in a context where there is no overarching climate policy. <laughs> my biggest complaint about hydrogen, which is also my biggest complaint about carbon dioxide removal, is basically that we are trying to make something that has very specific applications out of scarce resources. And if we're kind of talking about developing these in an unbounded way, you're always going to run into the question of, you know, even if you have fully renewable hydrogen production, could those renewables have been used to do something else? And up until you've met every other demand for this stuff, it's hard to say whether the hydrogen is the highest and best use for those input resources. So I think given that they can't really talk about that where we are because we don't have a coherent climate policy, I think they've done quite a good job on the electrolytic side. I have some really serious concerns about the way that they've handled the blue hydrogen side, which is basically the methane-based stuff, and largely because of some of the loopholes that it leaves open for allowing alternative sources of methane by environmental attributes to be used as offsets, essentially. 
So if you claim that you're using some RNG, basically because you bought a right that says that you get to own the RNG that somebody has made somewhere, or if you can make a claim that you own fugitive gases that were not admitted to the atmosphere because somebody fixed a pipeline somewhere, you can get to some very, very high subsidy levels within the 45B credit without really doing a lot other than gray hydrogen. And that, I think, is potentially still a closable loophole, but it's one that's there right now. And for me, it's what I hope is like a first step because it's back to what do we do with electricity, right? It's like, oh, I bought these credits, these attributes for this wind farm in Oklahoma and up here in New York State. Cool, I get credit. After a point, we're talking about getting the entire electric grid to net zero. And so within that, I need to develop the grid I need locally as well. Uh, you know, so it was a starting point, And I'm hoping, to your point, Emily, this is a starting point And we start tightening some of these loopholes to actually have us develop the system that we need for the full net zero transition. We're not there yet. Oh, so this is really interesting. Going back to what you were just saying, Emily. So again, it's back to this sort of philosophical point about if it's uh, the methane molecules don't have labels on them, you can't say this is one that for sure comes from a source that means it's renewable natural gas, it comes from agricultural waste or something like that, or it comes from emissions and leakage that's being avoided. And so how do you actually tell whether there really are kind of net benefits in terms of emissions for the natural gas that's being used to make the blue hydrogen? Sorry, also just footnote, just for anyone so blue hydrogen, this is these rainbow of colours for hydrogen are often very confusing, I think, but blue is what is the term used to mean hydrogen made from natural gas, where you then take the carbon dioxide emissions from that process and capture and store them. So the idea is that it can also be, depending on how much of the emissions you capture, that can also be low carbon or very low carbon. And possibly, depending again on the process used for electrolytic hydrogen or green hydrogen made from water, sometimes blue hydrogen can have actually lower emissions than green hydrogen, but it is a very complicated picture, right? And so, Emily, again, you are saying you have these concerns about what's been announced, but it's not too late to fix the problem, right? Because there is, uh, as I say, the uh, guidelines that have been issued are just... Uh, proposed ones, the final rule is coming later. What do you think ought to be done then to kind of plug these loopholes you've been talking about? I think there's a couple of things. On the blue side in particular, I think there needs to be a really, really tight understanding of what it would mean to be using alternative sources of methane, essentially. And I personally would like to say maybe no possibility of steam methane reforming without carbon capture being eligible for the 45B credits. I think there are a couple of ways that that could be done that are in line with the way that the rest of the credit is structured, but is a little complicated because of the difference between the ways that methane are, uh, is really managed versus electricity. I think the other thing that's kind of complicated about this is that a lot of the time the alternative sources of methane that get to claim some sorts of, of climate benefits, I'm not convinced that they actually have those climate benefits. So that's the the other big piece. So I'd like to see something that says you can't just have gray hydrogen, essentially, which would be uh, methane-based hydrogen without carbon capture. Right. That's very interesting. Certainly, it's going to be interesting to see the way those rules evolve before we get to the final guidance from the Treasurer and the IRS. Just a quick flag for anyone who wants to go like deeper on like the different colors of hydrogen and what they may or may not mean. Um, I think we mentioned it when we were at COP. Ed, but Julio Friedman and I did a podcast on the hydrogen rainbow on the big switch, and it really does break it down and it even goes into biohydrogen, which doesn't have a color right now. But, you know, the oranges, the yellows, the purples, the all the things. Um, so you can you can get a quick uh, primer there. I know that's what we use in my class. Uh, so students who are just getting exposed to hydrogen can go a little bit deeper. Around all this, I'll just reiterate and 
I hate to say double click again on the point of um, we have a starting point now. We are not under any illusion that the current set of guidances are, you know, a full solution to support a net zero economy. They're an incremental positive change. And so if we can get some things tightened up over time, then we can see continued progress. And around that, if you want to know more about the parallel I said around electrification and the additionality and how we build the grid we need, I did this thing on corporate procurement of renewables a couple of years ago here at the center. And we talked about how, you know what, buying those attributes really did help in the short term. Like the evidence is really clear. It did help to have corporations buying those attributes. It led to additional and faster build outs, but it did not set the whole system on track for 100% reduction of emissions. And so that's the next step. So just wanted to flag those two things for people who want to go deeper. Yeah, and I do think that's a really important point, actually, which is there is very clearly a tension here. And there's a danger of making the perfect be the enemy of the good that you can draw up these rules in a variety of different ways, if you draw them really tightly to make sure that in every respect, the uh, industry that you're trying to develop hydrogen in this case is super low carbon and everything is being done properly and as it would be in a perfect world that can end up being too restrictive and actually stifle the growth of the industry and maybe if you think that the most important thing is to develop the industry at speed then there's a case for being a little bit more relaxed about the rules at least in the early stages certainly letting an industry develop letting investment flow letting people build stuff which is really super important and then maybe over time after that, tightening up on all the rules and regulations to make sure that um, the, the emissions are as low as they can possibly be. And that was essentially something which the Treasury nodded to in its guidance that it brought out in December, because it said basically that some of the rules are going to be kind of more relaxed in the first three years and then get tighter later. I guess the question is whether they've got the balance right there and whether perhaps that's still three years is not really enough and you might need a little bit longer with the rules in their more relaxed form what they call annual matching as opposed to hourly matching which is a whole other area of philosophy i probably don't really want to get into at the moment but anyway point being uh, that as i say these rules are going to be uh less tight less stringent initially get more restrictive over time that seems like a good idea but maybe the industry actually needs a bit longer with the less restrictive rules in order to develop. I, I mean, blunt comment is I love there's transparency about how decisions are made. It's not pretending like this is perfect for XYZ outcome, whatever that is. It's actually saying this is the balance we think perhaps is right for what we're trying to do, which is kickstarting an industry. And if you're in the space where you think that we need hydrogen as one of the fuels, one of the tools in our toolbox to get to net zero, then kickstarting things, or I guess accelerating things, because we do have a small hydrogen industry, is a good thing to do. Um, so I, I love the honesty and transparency around intentions and goals. I also love people pointing out as Emily, you've done, which is great, about where you see gaps and where you see next steps going, because that intellectual honesty is how we actually get solutions. Like, I, I think that's great. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a great point. That's absolutely right. Um, unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Emily, we have to let you go and teach, I know. And uh, we certainly don't want to stop you doing that. Just before you go, though, very quickly, we're going to do free electrons, personal items that we've brought in. Emily, what's yours? Yeah, I have a free electron. Also, a correction to something I said earlier, I think I misspoke and was saying that at the thousand kilowatt hour uh, per person level, you would be using only about one percent of global emissions with coal. That's at the hundred kilowatt hour level, which is the one that's usually used by the UN to mean basic access. So 
1.4% is kind of the 100 kilowatt hour uh, level. 14% though is still pretty low. That gets you a whole thousand kilowatt hours per person, even with coal. But that's related to my free electron because um, we actually finally upgraded to a longer range EV. We've been happily driving around our leaf that can get 30 miles to a tank uh, <laughs> in the winter times up here. But my new vehicle has an 82 kilowatt hour battery, which essentially one charge is basic access for a person for a year. And that is simultaneously kind of neat because now I can go to Chicago and kind of horrifying. So that's my free electron. Very cool. What brand is that? Do you want to advertise it? It's a Polestar. Nice. Yeah, yeah. A, not an sounds SUV. Good. So yeah. <laughs> that was the goal here. Yeah, indeed. Sounds cool. Well, I have definitely heard from other people, there's been a bit of coverage in the press, more adverse commentary in particular about EV performance in cold weather. So I'm pleased to see that you've been happy with yours. Melissa, what's, what's uh, your free electron? Yeah, so to say, Emily, I'm waiting for another, like another couple months, I think, of data from my first winter in New York with an EV. Um, you know, one that is not parked in a nice cozy garage. <laughs> and so he's experiencing a lot of, of the inclement weather because um, it's definitely taking a hit on our EV as well. And so just seeing how that all plays out um, in the data will be really fascinating come like April. I think we'll be in spring by April. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Okay, we're going to uh, check in with you on that one, definitely. <laughs> Let's come on the show and tell us about it. Um, fantastic. Well, I've got I've got so many free electrons that I was debating. One of them I actually already mentioned. I know, Ed, I'm trying to go with one. It's not possible. <laughs> you always have two. Um, one but of... anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, oh, can I have on. two? Go yes, I got permission. Um, so um, I'll, I'll say two things, but one will be a free electron. Um, one is uh, around the different pieces of the puzzle of like how we get to net zero and what practical pathways are forward from it. I um, want to flag, I was in the office when this was being recorded. Um, Shalanda Baker was here on campus uh, and recorded a podcast with Jason Bordoff, the director of our center. On his podcast, they really dove into so many things that we're seeing in D.C. And now we do have, to my comment earlier, we don't have the data out from Justice 40 and benefits and all the metrics there about how investments have gone. But we have learned a lot um, in the past few years um, with that office that she leads. And so just wanted to flag it. Like, I'm about halfway through the episode. I was in the office. I saw them recording, but I couldn't put a cup up to the door. So <laughs> I'm now listening to it online. Um, but I just think it's a really important thing to highlight that, like, when we look through um, you know, I was there in Texas for Winterstorm Yuri, and we were without power for a week. We had, you know, some safety in the form of a full tank on our vehicle, um, our fossil fuel vehicle to keep warm and safe and recharge some cell phones and all that. But hundreds of people died around the state and how we think about who was disproportionately affected and then what the net results of like energy and security are on health outcomes. Like it just is a reminder about how much we're living these imbalances and these gaps in terms of equity between different communities um, and the justice piece of that entire equation. Um, so just would encourage folks to read that and also the energy and security fact sheet that uh, we put out around energy and security in the U.S., putting some numbers on the concepts we talk about, uh, written by my colleagues Diana Hernandez and Chandresa and Vivek on that team. Um, it's really a, a sobering set of numbers um, that I've been reflecting on a lot. But it's also an encouraging one because I feel like we have information on where core problems are, and now it's a matter of how are we going to respond to them if that is a priority to solve, which I think it is in the U.S. It's definitely part of the conversation to everything we've been talking about today. The second thing I'm going to say and um, is when we were at COP, we gave a shout out to Toby, one of our producer's moms. I heard a rumor 
to Toby's dad that you were like, why don't I get a, a shout out? And what I will say is, we haven't said it on the show, but your show notes that you send into your son are great. Um, so your feedback, you are one of our avid listeners, and we really appreciate all the, the feedback you give and the detailed notes you send in. It helps us be better. It helps us go into different um, topics. And genuinely, those of you who reach out with a lot of information, like I really appreciate it because it gives me different perspectives, how you hear what our discussions sound like and what you think we should be talking about. And um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an academic and I'm a professor. I I want to think about how we improve these conversations over time. And that's on my mind. So um, shout out to Toby's mom during COP and Toby's dad at this moment here post-COP. That's it. Absolutely. Great point. Yeah. As you say, many thanks to both of to- Toby's parents for your contributions to this show down the years. Um, and as Melissa says, always great to hear from people whoever they are, even if they're not related to a member of the production team, they're still very keen to hear from you. And so please do keep that feedback coming. My Free Electron is an interesting thing which um, has happened uh, recently, which is the arrival of an activist investor putting pressure on BP, which I think raises a fascinating debate. Now, of course, BP, as you know, is one of the leaders among the international oil companies, along with some of the other European companies, Shell and so on. It's one of the leaders in embracing the energy transition, saying we need to invest in renewable energy. We need to shift away from fossil fuels and uh, embrace low carbon energy in a variety of different forms. And this investment firm called Bluebell has now cropped up as a shareholder in BP and essentially said, we think your strategy is misguided. We think you're doing the wrong thing. And what the firm says is, look, there's nothing about the energy transition in general. We are very much supporters of the need to transition to low carbon energy. They say it's nothing about renewables and renewable energy in general. They've invested in renewables in other companies. They say it's an argument about which companies are the right vehicles to be investing in the energy transition and question, is it an oil company like BP that's really best place to do that? And I think that's a really interesting debate, actually. And I think, and I still don't really think that debate has been settled. Different companies, different investors, different people across the whole landscape of energy have taken different views on this. You can absolutely take the view that really what we need is for oil companies and oil and gas companies to keep on producing oil and gas for as long as there is demand for oil and gas and to do it in the most environmentally responsible way and to let other companies invest in renewables and build the energy system of the future. And then what others say and what BP has been saying is, well, no, no, we have great advantages because we know energy markets, because we know about how to manage big projects because we have a steady stream of revenue from oil and gas operations, which we can reinvest into other areas, that's something that we're able to do. And therefore, we should be playing a key role in the energy transition. And as I say, I think the jury's still very much out on that. And what we're now seeing with this sort of challenge to BP is that thesis being tested. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the months to come in terms of what investors think. And certainly, if you just look at sort of reasonably short-term stock market performance, the companies that are moving less rapidly into the energy transition, so the American companies, for instance, uh, ExxonMobil, their shares have greatly outperformed BP's shares. So you could certainly say the message from the financial markets is that this is not really a business that oil and gas companies should be in, low-carbon energy. 
it's not a business that they really know well, have any particular competitive advantage in, therefore they should stay out of it and leave it to others. Do you have a view, Melissa? Where do you come down on this question about oil and gas companies in the transition? I, I'm going to flag, and I think we talked about this last year, I think a little bit around um, the op-ed that Jason Bordoff here at the center wrote about, you know, okay, so we've seen some oil and gas companies pull back from their climate pledges or their targets, the goals they've set as a company, and they've been rewarded by the markets. And around all these conversations, I think, one, it's showing the messiness of this transition where we have a lot of mixed incentives, and we have structures that were set up to incentivize the behavior we wanted to see in the past. And until we revise those, it's really going to struggle moving into the future. But around this, I'm with you on I'm watching this because I'm really curious how the conversations are going to go. But two, it goes back to what are the underlying structures that keep us from building momentum if our real goal is net zero as quickly as we can mid-century, you know, Paris Agreement, put in all these goals there, nationally determined contributions. What are the underlying structures that are not built for purpose for that? Where in the markets, where in the financing, investment, all of these pieces, it's not just about the tech. It's got to be about the underlying structures that incentivize certain behaviors. And especially when you're a publicly traded company or you have to respond to other interests, like that all comes into play and it has to in the current structure. So, you know, how are we thinking through that? So I'm watching it and it just highlights to me some of the things that we need to really think about if we are going to achieve these stated goals. So closing that gap between ambition and reality. But I'd really encourage folks to go read um, Jason's op-ed because I think it was a really good one It hit on a lot of the nuances in the conversation that maybe are missed if you look into the different parts of the arguments. So that's on your website, is it, at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy? It's actually, I should have been clear on this, sorry, Ed. It's an op-ed that's in the New York Times, and it's from August 7th of last year. And um, the title is, I just pulled it up again, Behind All the Talk, This is What Big Oil is Actually Doing. And it's out on August 7th of 2023. And really brings up a lot of these tensions um, and what needs to be resolved if we are going to close the gap between ambition and reality, because there's so many different factors that influence that. So there you go. Check it out. Yeah, that does sound very interesting. I will certainly do that. And actually, there's a lot more to be said. This is another really good subject for a future show. I think digging into this specific issue about the role of the oil and gas companies would be a good one to talk about. 100%. Anyway, for now, though, we do um, absolutely have to leave it here. Thanks very much, Emily, for joining us. Thank you. And many thanks to you, Melissa. Uh, It's great to be here. Enjoy the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, great talking to you as ever. Uh, Thanks very much to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we just were saying this, we do really value your feedback. Please do keep comments, complaints, criticism, praise, suggestions, whatever it might be. Keep it coming. And we'll be back in two weeks with all the latest news and views on the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.